Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. This is such a lovely uh, opportunity to have Adrienne Marie Brown on Bitch Talk. It's been a minute um, since I put in the request and I've been waiting for this moment and I really appreciate your time. I know you are a very busy, busy person. And um, I was just like, she has, they have to be on Bitch Talk. It just has to happen. So, so welcome. Thank you for having me here. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've always telling people I'm not busy but I do have like very limited, like very structured time, but I'm trying to reframe it. Cause I'm like, it's not busy. I'm just like, I block off a lot of time for writing, which means a lot of time for thinking. And it's been really a dance trying to figure out like, Oh, how do I still like, I love conversation. I love, you know, getting to be in, in conversations, especially about these big ideas. I, I feel committed to in the world, but I also need to keep writing big ideas. So, yeah, but I really, I'm grateful to be on here. I was like, bitch, that's my thing. So, (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was like, when I put the request in, they have to say yes. Right. They just, they just have have to. to. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people just get it right away. Yeah. Yeah. As you did. So we appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Before we dive in, uh, I, I mean, I'd like to dive into Grievers, and I know Ange yeah. probably would too, because um, that's the book that's out right now. Um, for the folks that don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Adrian Marie Brown. I am a writer. Um, right now, that's my main work, is I'm a writer in residence at Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. Um, I spent about 25 years doing facilitation most of it in black liberation, climate justice, um, and some reproductive justice work. And I deeply love facilitation and mediation and movements for social justice and change. And that will always be a part of my work. And right now I'm exploring how to move that work through fiction. So that's that's where I'm at. Um, and I'm a Virgo. <laughs> so important. Thank it's you. Matters. It really matters <laughs> to me. It matters to me. To piggyback everything that that you said that you're you're working towards, this book really encompasses all of that work. And I, I have to give a shout out here to my good friend Aaron, who gifted me Grievers, um, not only for this interview, but also because you know I'm experiencing an, an impactful loss in my life as well. And oh, I'm sorry I, to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's part of life, right? But um, everyone's life right now. mm -hmm. And um, I I read it in two days. Um, It was haunting. It was beautiful, beautifully written. I feel like everything that's been stewing inside of me was, was in that book. So I want to thank you, first of all. Um, And 
it was such an honor. I can't wait for the next two, but anyway, we'll get to that. So, um, Me either. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just, I really love this metaphor of, you know, uh, in your book, people are contracting this mysterious illness and they just freeze, they freeze in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that metaphor for people that are grieving, that's what happens is you, you freeze, you, you can't, you can't move, you can't function while everything else is going on around you. Um, so I thought that was a really beautiful metaphor, but also I felt like this, this argument for people to really be present, to stop moving so much and to really be present in their lives. And, and maybe that's how we survive the chaos around us. Yeah, you get it. Yeah. I mean, it's that it's like every time I have received the news that someone I loved was gone or was going I wanted to pause everything, stop the world. Usually, you know, they talk about the five stages or whatever. I mean, there's definitely always, I'm like, no, what you're telling me is not true. And I, I don't accept it. Um, and then moving through uh, all of it, it just is like, you actually need such stillness to be able to feel what is changing. And I think when people die, they disperse in a certain way. Like there's a way that's like, okay, now that they're not held in that body, they're in, in everyone that they touch there. That's what exists. And, and there's some ancestral aspect of them that gets to be free from suffering. I think, you know, who knows, but um, so I light my little candle and I'm like, go have a blast. You know, I'm going to be over here missing you. And, Mm. um, but it takes a while for me to get all the way to that piece where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm good. And I'm, I can accept that this is true. And I could feel my feelings about it. And I wish that we moved at a pace that allowed us to grieve each other. Uh, I do think that grief is part of our love. And maybe that's what's happening. um, At least for some of us, like, I feel like there's a split, you know, where there's, there's like some people who are like, I can't wait to get back to normal and everything go fast and everybody be traveling and, you know, like, and then I feel like there's this other portion of us that are like, I never want to get on a plane again. And I just want to be close to people who are close to me. And now I know how much I want to hold people. And I want a lot of time for ritual. And, you know, I, I need to be in work situations where I can say, I'm grieving today and in it might be a tender meeting or I might need to not be in this meeting or, or whatever it is. And I feel like that, that bent, that direction is one that if we keep going, I think it leads us to a way of being on this planet and with each other that we can, we'll live, <laughs> that, that humans will be here and uh, thrive, because we, yeah. and thrive and like, and, and be like, Oh, I live in an incredible world that fills me with wonder which is also part of the grief, right? But if you don't feel anything, if you're moving so fast, you can't feel anything, um, then yeah, I feel like I know people who died before they got to grieve their mm, grief for mm. their for all the things that they've lost. And instead of getting to feel it, they were just snatched away, especially younger people, people my age and younger, like all the folks I've lost who are young, I'm like, that doesn't feel right to me. And in part, it doesn't feel right because I'm like, you didn't even get time to feel it all. There's so much more to feel. Um, even if it's heartbreak, I, I you know, <laughs> my friend Alana Devich Sorrell passed away. Um, we're coming up on the third year anniversary of her passing. And she was in big love with my friend Malkia. 
And when one of the last times, actually the last day that she got to go outside in her dying process, she gave a talk. It was the renewal of their vows or like a second mm. wedding ceremony. And she said, I wish this fear for everyone. Mm. And mm. it's, you know, it was just like one of those things where it's like, yes, like you, you, once you find that kind of love, you do wish that for everyone. And it includes the fear of losing each other and the fear of the other person getting, you know, it's, it's what parents know, you know, your heart is outside your body. But I also think that's true interdependence is that, that level of, of, oh, I let you really touch me and be a part of me. And I, I was a part of you. So, yeah. Adrian, I <laughs> just, just, just to let you in, in a little peek of, of our lives over here. Um, yeah. I just got married a week ago and, um, oh, wow. and Angela, thank you. Angela here, um, officiated the wedding. Um, <laughs> oh. yeah. And so that, that, <laughs> book was a part of her efficient kind of gift. There's more coming though, Ange, but, um, yeah, I, I should I, really, this is all I needed. There's more coming. It was so appropriate. Adrian, you have no idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, but good. I really, I, so your book is very popular. I found, I feel like the last one in my, uh, neighborhood in San Francisco and I gave it to Ange. I'm wow. on my honeymoon right now and I'm still trying to find it. Maybe wow. I'll find it some way, but that's, that's a testament to your book and, yeah, the, and the way that you um, are um, during this time, I feel. And I really appreciate, I was listening to an interview with you recently talking about grievers. I appreciate the conversation that you're bringing to the forefront about grief because, um, and I know it's going to cry during this episode. <laughs> I mean, it's grievers. I know, you know. but um, I lost my father in 2007 and I oh. remember how, and you talk about capitalism and grief and how it's so intertwined and how um, capitalism really wants you to just, you know, have three days of grief. Yep. If you're lucky, yep. if you're privileged to have that paid and then you get, you move on. And I remember yeah. working at a very big hotel company and they were just really getting upset at me for not coming back to work. And I finally went back to work because I was taking care of my mom too, who just yeah. lost her husband. And I remember having a conversation with two of my managers and it's not their fault. It's capitalism's fault. It's, it's, it's the yes. structure, right? Yes. And I remember them pressuring me to come back to work and you have to be this way and you have to do these things. And then I was listening to you and I'm like, man, someone's finally voicing this and yeah. making this a conversation that we all need to have. So I don't know, is that the question in that is, are you feeling that, 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 that this conversation, you're kind of leading it and, mm -hmm. um, and that people are really now listening? Well, I mean, first I want to say, I'm sorry you lost your father. Um, and I'm sorry you weren't given room to be in that, you know? I, I do think that some of it is just the slowing down and being like, that doesn't go anywhere. You know, like how you feel about it now. This is the thing we know about grief is, or it, it, I think it doesn't get any less sharp, but it, the spaces in which you feel it might get more spacious, you know? So it might be mm -hmm. like, oh, right. When I first lost my grandfather, it was constant sharp. And then the sharpness, you know, it's like when I think of it, that sharpness was there. And if I really think of it still now, that sharpness is there. Mm -hmm. But but I also had time 
to be in it. You know, I'm lucky because I have a mother who grieves well. She mm. grieves really well. Like she gives herself fully to the feeling and she has modeled for me, for us, for the friends in my, you know, like anyone who's around our family knows that my mama knows how to grieve well. <laughs> and um, it matters to me, the people that I've lost, I think that's been something I've been learning is like, we have to learn to grieve well. So when you mm -hmm. ask, do I feel like I'm leading in this? It's interesting because I actually feel like I'm, I'm a student in this. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm learning, you know, Malkia Devich Surreal has been a major teacher for me. Mawalisa Thomas Adeyemo has been a major teacher for me. My mother has been a major teacher for me um, about, uh, Pema Children has been a major teacher for me. Um, Pema, Pema wrote uh, When Things Fall Apart, which when people lose someone, that's the top book that I will recommend to them. I feel like I'm a student in this and I'm hungry for the conversation. And if, if I do have a role, I think it's a doula role. You know, doula is a role that I feel comfortable with. It's something that I've done um, many times in the context of birth and sometimes in the context of death. So a lot of times in the context of collective work, collective birthing of something. And it feels like a, a doula work to kind of show up and be like, hey, um, we're feeling something. And I think, I suspect that what we're feeling is a hint of what we need to let go of like a large scale systemic death that needs to happen, right? We talk, you know, Joanna Macy calls this time the great turning and there's a turning and there's also a relinquishing. And I, I keep thinking about, um, have y'all been to the Grand Canyon ever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yep. no, so go to it. You should, you know, if you yes. haven't, I, I tell people, I'm like, not everything needs to be seen, but that's one of the things <laughs> like, if you're on the continent and you can get there, you should see Mm -hmm. um, because you can see history, like how history looks after a long time that like whole eras, you know, I look at it, I'm like, slavery is just a line in this wall, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's just a layer of this earth and, and everything that was experienced there can be held in that line and capitalism will be a line in that, right. That it feels like it's going to last forever, but actually it's just going to be there. And whatever we're creating will continue to exist on top of that. And it's so hard when you're inside of a massive oppressive system. Like I think of us, I think the most common um, alignment that we can find is people who were in long oppressions, like, like enslavement, where it's like multi-generational. If you were in the fourth or fifth generation of slavery, yeah, it was like, this always was, and this is always going to be, unless we do something to change it, but it doesn't feel like anything's possible. And how, how, how? And I'm like, oh, even in that, their grief was one of the answers, right? It's just like, we need to be able to honor our debt. We need to be able to hold off, have the, at least the coherence with each other to be able to do that. And I think that right now, that's a sign that if, if there's any canary in the coal mine of this time, is the fact that we are not given any room to honor the miracle of life when it ends. Mm. And, and, and we're inside of a system that is creating more and more endings, like speeding the process mm -hmm. of death. I've heard people call the U.S. A, a death cult, a death machine. Like 
that we're inside mm. the, the belly of not, not just any beast, because there's so many beautiful beasts in the world, but then there are those who are really committed to, um, I think of it as the nothingness, the sucking the life out, the mm-hmm. sucking the life out of the world, out of the earth, out of our bodies. And so I'm like, oh, we, we have to we have to address that. We have to really address that because the other thing is, and, and because y'all have had loss, you'll know this having lost people that you can feel this spirit. There's this, this, you can feel when the spirit has left the body and you can feel the spirit, the presence of it. And, you know, I've grown up hearing that matter doesn't go anywhere. It just transforms. And I think there's something about spirit that we don't understand yet that we're on the precipice of understanding or that maybe we have understood and we're remembering how to understand, but there's something similar like that, right? Where it's like, it doesn't go somewhere. It it doesn't go somewhere. It leaves the body, but then where is all that spirit? And Mm -hmm. how do we know that that spirit is not hurricanes? How do we know that that spirit is not wildfires? How do we know that that spirit is not joining with the earth and spreading COVID (laughs) and doing other, you know, like, how do we know we just don't understand as much as we think we do about how this all works. And given that, I think we need to have a lot more reverence for what we can witness and experience. It's like, we don't know what happens on the other side, but we do know that having not honored life and having not honored the miracle, we're in a much more precarious place here. And if we want to tether ourselves to this earth and to each other, maybe it may be part of the way we can do that is by honoring the tethers we already have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, I, I love the way that the way that you can make these things that are, you know, have such negative connotations like grief and, and turn it into something so beautiful. Um, and 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 it is a beautiful part of life. And um, on the topic of of capitalism, I just I res- I appreciate how positive and calm you are about all these things because Aaron and I have a tendency to just as, a as most fee. people get a little pissed and I'm sure you are too but the way you express yeah. it is a very calm um I don't even want to say hopeful because you you're it, it seems too passive of a word for what you do um mm. but um so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like just the system that we're living in, you know, um, mm-hmm. is incremental change good enough? Um, can we make real transformative change within our current political systemic capitalist uh, society mm-hmm. or, or do we, do we need to burn it down? You know, do we, <laughs> like, what, what is, what is it? Because I, yeah. I, I just want some of that calm storm. <laughs> it's like a quiet storm. I don't know. I quiet kind of, storm. I, I love it. that. I'm like, yeah. I've been looking for a Halloween costume. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that there is a deep peace that has come into me around some of these things in the past, like five years. And I think it came as I started to really understand emergent strategy, as I started to really understand pleasure activism, as I started to understand like abolition. And as I started to understand grief, like the importance of grief and the importance of mortality, you know, the fact that like, oh, I think that we're not here forever. And there's a reason for that, that it's like, we're not, it's not about us as individuals, like we're doing stuff and it's exciting and it's interesting or or not, you know, people have miserable lives too. (laughs) All that is happening. 
But I also think it's like we're in a lineage of ideas and concepts and spirit that is moving forward. And there's something humbling and relaxing in my system of being like, I am moving what I can on this lifetime. And I'm giving my all to moving everything I can in my lifetime, but I will only move what I can move. And, you know, I was reading this book recently. Um, I just finished it called Women at Work, the daily rituals of 143 like painters and artists and stuff. And there's great stuff in there about the practices, but something that moved me was I kept turning to a page and I'd be like, this was one of the most famous, amazing writers of the 18th century or whatever. And I'm like, never heard of her, never heard of this person. And then they would tell me about their lives and what they, and I was like, what a meaningful life, like what beautiful things they did. And I don't even, I've never heard of this person. And it doesn't mean their life has no value. And that's someone who's in a book. And then I think I have ancestors who are enslaved people who no one ever heard of at all. And that doesn't mean that their life wasn't incredibly valuable and that it doesn't imprint spiritually or even ideologically on mine. So all of that gives me some peace in terms of like how much rage do I need to walk with at the forefront of my life? Um, I also noticed that the rage burns the candle of my life faster Mm. than anything else. And I think that's intentional. I, I think there is a, a recognition from those that benefit from my disempowerment. That's like, yeah, stay angry, stay angry because the angry you are, the harder it's the hard, uh, the harder it is to make distinctions about who you're angry at and what you're angry about and to even develop analysis, right? It's, it actually is hard to be like, wait, I'm not angry at any of the other people trying to create change. I'm angry at the larger system and, oh, the system wants me to be divided from all these people. The system wants me to cancel and call each other out and, and just beef with everybody nonstop. We'll never have solidarity. We'll never overcome anything from that place. Aha, right? Then I'm like, I'm on to y'all. So then I'm like, well, we have to figure out then what solidarity looks like. And solidarity does come from a more centered and grounded place most of the time which doesn't say rage doesn't have a role to play, but that focused rage. I don't know if you follow Ashley Marie Preston, but since that Dave Chappelle special came out, you know, Uh, there's been all this like flurry of information and and flurry of feelings and and rage, righteous, all of the feelings. Ashley Marie Preston did this move for a walkout uh, from Netflix. And, Mm -hmm. but what I've loved about her presence online is she's like, this is not, I'm not trying to cancel or erase your ink that I, I want a transformative conversation. I believe, I believe even us, even you and I, me and you, Chappelle could have some solidarity. We could get somewhere else on this. And for that to be coming from a black trans woman, to me, I'm like, that's what it's all about is harnessing that rage and harnessing that and saying, I'm not afraid to be in a conversation with you directly. I'm not afraid of the conflict here. I'm not afraid of using this as a teaching moment. Like, there's something really powerful here about the impact of the stories that get told. When those moments happen, I think it takes us beyond the incremental versus revolutionary transformative change because it's not two things. It's, it's every day we are making changes and they accumulate in ways that allow for massive revolutionary shifts. And if we were at a moment at a time when it's like, let's burn it all down, we would know that because we'd be burning it all down, right? Mm. And whenever those moments come, we see them come. And we've been in an era 
where people have hit that point, it's happening more and more frequently where people are like, we're in Minnesota, fuck it, we're burning it down. Oakland, you know, like we're hitting those. And even in COVID, which I think has been so incredible as people are like, we will risk it all because injustice isn't, we cannot do it, you know? Mm-hmm. I think we're actually in a par- period where the systems that are oppressing us are more fragile every single day and they show that fragility. And in our ways, we are building up the capacity to not just critique those systems and even burn them down or tear them down. We are building up the capacity to lead beyond them. And that I think is when burning it all down becomes a a viable strategy. Hmm. Because I'm not actually interested in burning it all down and then being in chaos with a bunch of people who can't even handle a very basic conflict. Hmm. I'm interested in being on the other side with people who are like, I know how to make acorn bread and we can (laughs) work it out if we have a conflict and here's how we honor our dead. How do you do it? And we can set boundaries if we need them. Like I want that future. And I think when we feel more confident about our capacity to be in that future, it allows us to be in the present with more uh, precision, right? It's like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to run around and put my energy everywhere there are specific battles that are mine you know in this lifetime i am meant to push abolition forward i am meant to push emergent strategy forward you know i am meant to push pleasure and joy forward i know those things maybe there'll be other things but those have come very clearly and so i do those precisely and you mostly won't find me talking about things that are not related to that (laughs) you know um so i say that you know for me I feel like a revolutionary in a time that is learning to revolt. And I'm, I'm a student. <sighs> I, <know. laughs> I want to <Sign>. journal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go write in my diary. Yeah. I really um, the best uh, feedback of a conversation. I mean, that's how, that's when, you know, a conversation, you know, my mentor, Grace Lee Boggs always oh. emphasized the power of conversation and, um, I think for, you know, for, I was like, what? <laughs> we need to be like doing stuff in the streets. And she was like, protest politics is important. You know, it has a role, but we have to be in conversations that help us understand what we're thinking and how, how does thinking change? It's so intimate to change your thought or to even accept the idea that you could change your thinking and conversations, how that happens. And I know I've had a good conversation because then I'm like, hold on. I I, I realized something, you know, the ahas are there. So I I know we have to wrap up very soon. Um, Soonish. Okay. So I won't be be bitchy about it. (laughs) I mean, if you were, it's fine. Um, But you just mentioned Grace Lee Boggs and um, I, myself as a uh, Chinese American had no idea about her until I was, uh, until I watched Judas and the black Messiah. And then I was like on some weird Google hole rabbit yeah. hole and found out about her. And then <laughs> she was your mentor. Yeah. And I'm like, why didn't I know about her? So can you yeah, talk more so about Grace Lee Boggs? Grace Lee Boggs was a badass. Yes. Um, you would have loved her. She, yeah. she was a great person interesting ferocious brilliant um like she's one of those people you could really say was like that's a brilliant person you know people throw that word around Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. she really did that so you know she um was a chinese american and it's funny in her i think fbi file 
At one point they called her Afro-Chinese because she rolled so deeply with black power movements. And they were mm-hmm. like, you can't understand this other than like, you must have black in you because <laughs> you do that. Yeah, um, can't, be like, can't be both. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. So for her, it was like, you know, she she fell in love with movement. She fell in love with black labor movement and, and what she saw there. She moved to Detroit when she was, I think, 38 um, and and did most of her revolutionary work there in partnership with her her love, Jimmy Boggs, who um, passed away about 20 years before her. And I got to meet her when she was, I think, 91 or 92. Wow. Um, and she lived to be 100 years and 100 days old. Um, actually, it was, just the re- the, it was just the anniversary of her passing, October 5th. Um, but Grace was, Grace was a massive thinker. Like she shaped many of us to think about possibility. She taught us to transform ourselves in order to transform the world, um, which now I think of as like how we do fractal organizing. Um, She taught us about radical imagination that we have to be willing to imagine beyond what we're in right now and make it compelling for people to wanna practice and, and move that way. And she was very interested in solutions. You know, she talked about being a solutionary and like revolution with a capital E, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. she was very interested in like, how do we evolve and grow and be oriented towards the, the things that will get us there. Um, and, and I liked her in part because she wasn't perfect. You know, she, she had her rude edges. She had her short edges. I was lucky that when I met her, she was just into me. Um, so like, <laughs> I know a lot of people were like, yeah, Grace, I don't know. She, she did not cut me slack. But for me, she was just, you know, I, I think maybe she was old enough to just be like, okay, you're, you know, we can just be here. Um, yeah, but I recommend the movie American Revolutionary, which is a movie about her life and her work. And I recommend reading her autobiography, Living for Change. And then I think the last book she published was Scott Kurashiga, which is called The Next American Revolution. Um, she thought big. You know, everything was like, let's just, let's think about the whole thing, the whole system, like all dialectical change, all dialectical humanism. Like we are, we're spiraling up and we're never the same as we were before. So uh, yeah, Gracie Box, a huge, a huge gift of a human being. And this is the same thing, right? It's like someone like that, everyone should know about Grace. And People might not learn about Grace, but her ideas are living in so many of us. Like almost anyone in movement in Detroit has been touched by her work. And, and then those organizations now go out and influence so many things. And in that way, it's okay if you don't know her name. Um, the, ideas, the ideas are the important thing. And she knew that. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Yeah, we'll definitely throw those up there. Um, but yeah. but you, we have to go. But you you did just mention De- Detroit and yeah. the, this book, Grievers, is your your love letter to the city. I haven't been there. It's it's on my list. But um, I, I would just love to hear why, other than living there and loving it, why was yeah. Detroit the perfect setting for this story? And what makes it yeah. so special? And if you have any recommendations for mm-hmm. when we go? Oh yeah, I mean. One of the things that Grace often said was Detroit is what the rest of the country has to look forward to. And because it is a black city, um, there's things that have been allowed to happen there in terms of infrastructural failure, economic 
um, depression that, you know, a lot of places be like, what? You, that can't happen, right? But because it's a black city and especially when it had black leadership, um, there were things that were, were unfolding there that are fascinating. Um, so it really is a city where the there was a total economic collapse such that the city should have died. Like other places, especially smaller places that have had similar economic collapse either no longer exist or, or barely exist. And Detroit came back and it came back because it seemed like everyone left, but then there are people who stayed, black people who stayed and they stayed and they gardened and they worked together and they took care of each other. And before, you know, the term was mutual aid, they were in a mutual aid dynamic and they created incredible projects um, that are post-capitalist projects really to move through it. And then as the city has now come back, I say that in quotes, um, the only reason that was able to happen was because of all this innovation that happened in the absence of all those resources. And now the city I think is struggling with what to do with the influx of, you know, it's like the resources come and it's like, how do you build something that can last when the resources go again? Cause they always do. Um, so in that way, it was an interesting place to me. It's also interesting because of where it's located. So it's a Midwest city. It's also right on the border of Canada. And technically it's North of Canada. It's like the only spot, the only city like that, where it's like the way the, hmm. the way the, the water moves, <laughs> the actual hmm. border makes Canada just South of Detroit. <laughs> um, so you go South and then drive back up to Toronto. Weird. <laughs> but so it's on the border. And I think that's also an important thing is like, it, it then creates so many intersections. It's, a, it's the intersection of blackness and tons of immigrant communities that have moved there. It is a place that has been a massive industry center. It is a place that is international in nature. So when I started imagining like, what would a, what would a syndrome look like here? What would have to shut down? What would have to change? How would the border work? And, all of that was really curious. I started working on it in 2011. Um, and then the other reason why is everybody said this from the moment I first came to Detroit is people try to say this is a blank canvas because so many people left. And when you drive through the city, you can see what look like ruins or empty lots. But if you drive around with a Detroiter, they're like, this was this, this is the Motown building. This whole block had the most beautiful houses on it. And this, you know, like there's city in their memory laying on top of the city that's there now. And depending on who you're with, you see a different city each time. And that is just so beautiful to me. Like that way of moving through a, a city is so beautiful. So Detroit was, a, you know, it was like, this city is right for this conversation because now we have all these people who are crossing over and where are they? And does that mean the city is empty? And I wanted to explore that. So that's, you know, I, I, I'm really excited about the next two books in the series because this first one is really just sitting with the grief, you know, getting to know Dune and, and like really getting to, I, I feel like write a character that got to be selfish in a way that I've never <laughs> been allowed to be with my grief. Like I was just like, turn out the phone, lose your phone close the door. And I was like, God, like, you know, it was like almost an erotic jealousy. <laughs> of grief. You know, I was just like, God, I wish I could do it that way. Um, and then the next books are really about what does it mean then to 
begin to connect and to survive? What does it look like to go beyond this, this moment of intense grief? So yeah, I think Detroit, I think I, I want everyone to go there um, and, and to actually get to spend some time uh, understanding what that city is like. We'll see if we're ever allowed to travel places really again, but <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap this up with um, thank you for also bringing to our attention pleasure activism. Um, during yeah. the pandemic, we were sort of talking about that and then um, and also talking about gratitude. And um, some of our shows, when we remember, we ended on um, your moment <laughs> of pleasure. So I just want to say my moment of pleasure almost every week is when you post your memes of like on Instagram, hilarious. Yes. And thank you. I, I love yeah. that from you. And I appreciate that. I'll throw in that my moment of pleasure was oh. reading your book in two days because yeah, I felt wow. seen. I love that you I read it in two days. Cause easily. I people, I'm like, it's a quick read if you want it to be like, yeah, easily. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. Thanks to my friend here. It was just perfect timing, the right moment. And yeah, I felt so validated. And like mm -hmm. you said, like wishing I could have acted as Dune did, but also yes. validated in my thoughts and how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. So Thank you so much. Well, my moment of pleasure is going to be here with y'all. I, I feel the authenticity with which you met this conversation. And I feel like that's how we don't waste our lives. Like when we really show up and be present. So thank you. Adrienne Marie Brown, what a pleasure to have you on Bitch Talk. And I hope that we can have more conversations because I have so many more questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank this you. was a real pleasure for me. Thank you both. And, you know, grieve well. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.